0: I'm Bill Muhlenberg from Culture Watch here again with The Good Sauce, offering some more recent pieces of interest. Uh, The matter of social justice is something you would have heard of often, both from uh, often political leftists, but sadly also from Christians of the left. So how are we to assess this notion of social justice We hear it a lot now, of course, even with the Democrats and Biden. A lot of Christians saying uh, this is why we vote for the left, because they're concerned about social justice. So let's look at this matter in more detail, uh, both on the political and social level, as well as on the biblical theological level. social justice, and the church. There is nothing wrong with being concerned about the well-being of your neighbor, but there is plenty wrong in thinking that more big government is the answer. Plenty of the social justice warriors on the left never lift a finger to actually help their neighbor, but they are more than happy to vote more government handouts in. Of course, that means a bigger government, higher taxes, and of course, less economic growth. But it is economic growth which has proven to be the best means of helping the poor. More government programs have not been the answer, yet sadly, plenty of Christians have bought into the idea that confiscatory state welfare programs are somehow the thing Jesus would urge. Uh, Nope. The Bible throughout urges God's people to take personal responsibility to help the poor and the needy. It nowhere demands a growing state bureaucracy or socialist confiscation policies. It puts the responsibility where it belongs. But lefty social justice warriors always manage to mangle scripture as they baptize socialist economics and big government solutions to our social and economic problems. Now, is there a place for government help here? Of course. God created the institution of the state, and it certainly has some role to play. But God also created the institution of the church, and he expects believers to also play a big role, simply absolving ourselves of any personal responsibility, whether as individual believers or as the church. And thinking an ever-expanding state should do all this is not a case of what would Jesus do. But I have made this case often enough, and uh, plenty of other articles could be referred to. But since so many Christians especially get this so very wrong, it's worth spending more time on this. In the minds of many believers, the Christian thing to do is simply to vote for more high-taxing, big-spending entitlement politicians and parties, bringing them into office, be it the Democrats in the U.S. or Labor and Greens in Australia. They may not lift a finger to actually help the poor themselves, but they think that voting socialists into power fulfills their Christian duties. Oh, and they may go to some rock concert that throws around platitudes of helping the poor, thinking they have done their Christian bit. But helping the poor is far different than that, biblically speaking. Here I want to draw upon the insights found in two recent articles on this. Regis Nicole of the CoSon Center just penned a piece, The Unjustice of Social Justice, which is worth quoting from. He begins with a brief definition. Justice is about fair play, giving people what is owed them without bias or favoritism. Any employee is owed a fair wage by his employer, and uh, any accused criminal is owed a fair trial by the court, just as a child is owed protection and care of his parents. He then looks at the biblical picture as well as lessons from church history. To be sure, God is special concern for those on the margins of society. Scriptures full of warnings about injustices to the poor and disenfranchised. But contrary to the gospel of liberation, God's foremost concern is not emancipating us from political and economic oppression, it is redeeming us from sin. This is not to diminish the importance of giving people what they need. To the contrary, meeting the needs of others has been at the heart of Christian action from the beginning. In the first century, Christians took such comprehensive care of their own that St. Luke remarked there were no needy persons among them. During the plagues in the second and third century, Christians attended the needs of the sick and dying who had been abandoned by their pagan physicians and civil leaders. The Christian community went on to establish the first hospitals and orphanages such that by the fourth century, the scope of their compassion attracted both the notice and ire of the Caesars. Frustrated over the social conditions in the Roman Empire, Flavius Julian called it a scandal that Christians, quote, care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. The effectiveness of charity among the early Christians is attributed to something ignored in the modern discussion on social justice. What Jesus had in mind is a far cry from what the social justice warriors have in mind. He continues, When Jesus taught about charity and compassion, he was not speaking to Roman councils about their governmental duties. He was speaking to individuals about their moral duties. That's because in the biblical division of responsibility, the church, not the state, is the instrument of compassion. As divinely ordained, the duties of the state are limited to restraining evil, executing justice, and securing social order. The state fulfills that high calling by protecting the rights of its citizens. First and foremost, their natural rights, which include the freedoms of speech, thought, and religion. And secondarily, their legal rights, such as the right to vote and drive a car. And he continues to talk about how the focus needs to be on the church, not the state. To achieve real social justice, the state must decrease and the church increase in the area of compassion. Is that a realistic expectation? Many folks would say no. But given the inefficiencies and impersonal nature of the state welfare system and the fact that Christians make up over 70% of the tax base, the Church could take over the compassion business efficiently and effectively with only a fraction of the cost of state-run programs. I have no misgivings. Such a transition could not happen overnight. Even with the political will of the electorate and the moral will of the church, it would take years, if not decades, to shrink government and prepare the church, both individual Christians and organizations, to discover or rediscover its biblical role in compassion services. In a follow-up article entitled, Has Government Become Too Big?, he continues this discussion. Thomas Jefferson is said to have quipped a government big enough to give you everything you want is a government big enough to take away everything you have. While history does not support the Jeffersonian attribution, it does support the conclusion. Witness Soviet Union, Communist China, and North Korea. But how big is too big? At what point does the size of government become an obstacle to effective governance and the common good? Plainly, government needs to be large enough to protect the governed and their property, but not so large that it becomes a threat to those ends. Of course, when a country spends over 0.5 trillion each year, more than it takes in, it is safe to say it has reached beyond what it can effectively govern. He spends some time on the claim that we need to just raise more taxes and get more rich to pay their fair share, and says this, The bottom line is we can't tax our way out of the deficit, much less the federal debt, currently a staggering $20 trillion and rising. That means getting our fiscal house in order will largely depend on reducing spending by trimming the growth of government. In 1789, the federal government consisted of about 50 employees in three departments, State, Treasury, and War. Today, there are 4.4 million federal employees working in hundreds of departments, organizations, and agencies. Although an exact figure is hard to pin down, estimates vary between 200 and 500 federal entities with duplication of effort, overlap, and inefficiency rife. He takes us back to what the American founding fathers believed. The U.S. government is currently running at about 36% of the GDP, with the biggest area of growth over the last 100 years – in entitlement programs—Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, welfare, food stamps, and so on. Those programs, which amount to nearly one-half of the total, were virtually non-existent prior to the 20th century. It reflects the thinking of Founding Fathers that, as James Madison put it, charity is no part of the legislative duty of government seems that the Founders understood what our modern leaders have forgotten or dismissed. In the area of compassion, services to the needy are best administered by those closest to the problem, that is, local and regional organizations like churches, faith-based institutions, civic groups, and volunteer associations. In fact, for the first 1900 years of its existence, the church took the lead in social work, establishing hospitals, orphanages, food distribution systems, and houses for the poor and aged. He speaks more to the vital role of the church. As I have noted previously, when Jesus taught about the duty to the poor, he was not speaking to Roman councils about their duties. He was speaking to private citizens about theirs. Until the modern era, Christians accept the biblical division of responsibility by which the church, not the state, is the instrument of charity. That is not to say the state has no responsibility to alleviate human need in the wake of widespread emergencies. Think of the Great Depression, Dust Bowl, Hurricane Irma. Rather, it is a reminder that the state's involvement should be limited and temporary, augmenting, not usurping, the responsibilities of the church and other mediating organizations established to serve the common good. To starve the Leviathan, the church must reclaim its biblical role. In partnership with other mediating groups, the church must be a compassion supplier that progressively reduces the demand for state involvement in social service. As mentioned, as he mentioned, this will not be easy. Far too many Christians have abandoned their biblical responsibilities here and have simply looked to big government as their savior. And no state ever willingly likes to relinquish power and control. The bigger it grows, the more it demands. And the growing pool of those getting government handouts continues to spiral out of control. So between unbiblical Christians who have forsaken scriptural counsel an ever-expanding welfare state and a growing percentage of those living on entitlements, this will never be an easy task. But if we really want to help those in need, and if we really want to do things by the book, the good book, then it is time to start rethinking all of this before such change becomes impossible. Ronald Reagan certainly had it right when he said, Welfare's purpose should be to eliminate, as far as possible, the need for its own existence. Let me finish with a humorous take on the Psalms from a few years back. It does indeed help make my case. The state is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me to lie down in federally owned pastures. It leads me beside quiet waters in banned fishing areas. It restores my my soul through its control. It guides me in the path of dependency for its namesake. Even though our nation plunges into the valley of the shadow of debt... I will fear no evil, for Barack will be with me. The Affordable Care Act and food stamps, they comfort me. You prepare a table of Michelle Obama-approved foods before me in the presence of my conservative and libertarian enemies. You anoint my head with hemp oil, my government-regulated 16-ounce cup overflows. Surely mediocrity and an entitlement mentality will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in a low-rent H-U-D home forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 666. Having just been chided by a Christian socialist on another page on this site... She seemed quite perturbed that Corbyn and Labour were soundly rejected in the UK. It is worth again looking at some of the issues that arise here. That socialism is an utterly failed ideology, both in theory and in practice, should by now be obvious to all. And that Christians should want nothing to do with it should also be obvious. That I have written on often before. I will not revisit what is found in earlier articles, but will instead draw upon some new and not-so-new works that further address these themes. One very recent article examines socialism's unbroken trail of failure. John Ibsen writes, Having left an unbroken trail of failure in its wake, socialism is doomed to fail wherever it is tried, because it is... In eternal mortal conflict with the basic human instinct that those who work hard, pursue advanced education, employ their ingenuity or risk their capital, have an inborn expectation to do significantly better than those who don't. As 18th century Scottish economist Adam Smith put it, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Stated differently, every socialist who works for a living does so not out of altruistic instincts, but to feather his own financial nest. That, too, will never change. He looks at various myths, including the idea that socialism is simply about fairness and equality. One of the most chilling commands in the Communist Manifesto is this. The theory of communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolish all private property. In socialist countries, the only people who own high-value assets are the socialist rulers and their loyal cronies. Because there is little upward mobility under socialism, Socialist societies are characterized by two economic levels, a small, immensely wealthy ruling elite at the top, and at the bottom, the low-income masses forced to obey the dictates of their socialist masters. A large and prosperous middle class like what we have in America does not exist in countries with single-party socialist rule." Those who doubt that need only ask people who have lived in such places. And a year ago, Julie Roys offered five reasons socialism is not Christian. Here is one of her points, number three. Socialism endorses feeling. Barack Obama once defended his socialist policies to a little girl by saying, we've got to make sure that people who have money more money help the people who have less money. If you had a whole pizza and your friend had no pizza, would you give him a slice? That sounds pretty Christian, right? What Christian wouldn't endorse sharing your abundance with someone who has nothing? However, Obama wasn't endorsing people voluntarily sharing their wealth with others. He was endorsing the government forcibly taking a piece of the pie from one person and giving it to someone else. Put another way, that's saying that if you have three cars and your neighbor has none, the government has a right to take your car and give it to your neighbor. That's not Christian. That's stealing. But socialists don't believe in private property. And some Christian socialists actually assert that the Bible doesn't either. That's preposterous. Both the Old Testament and the New unequivocally affirm private property. We can't even obey the Eighth Commandment to not steal unless we accept the notion of private ownership. Nor can we steward our money as the Bible commands if the state owns our money and not us. So for an economic and political system to be Christian, it must protect private ownership and allow individuals freedom to allocate their resources according to their conscience. The social justice crowd is keen to run with such government confiscation of wealth, pretending it is somehow compassionate and Christian. Not really, In his very important 1983 book, Idols for Destruction, Herbert Schlossberg speaks about a society that has institutionalized envy and uses the term social justice to describe a system of legalized theft. That should alert us to the cant in the old fraud that property rights can somehow be separated from human rights and are inferior to them. There are no societies that are cavalier toward property rights, but which, safe, which safeguard human rights. The state that lays its hand on your purse will lay it on your person. Both are the acts of a government that despises transcendent law. Those who think they will replace the competition of capitalism with the cooperative cooperation of socialism know nothing of either. He goes on to discuss Christian socialists and their various theological and economic shortcomings. He notes how these folks undermine key theological principles as they push pragmatic concerns. In his discussion, he has a quote and a footnote from the Austrian-British philosopher and economist Friedrich Hayek. That short quote sparked my interest, so I ran to one of my bookshelves, found the volumes in question, blew off the dust, and reread the relevant portions. I refer to his hugely important three volume work, Law, Legislation, and Liberty. In volume two, he has a helpful chapter on social or distributive justice. He is worth quoting from at length. The appeal to social justice has nevertheless by now become the most widely used and most effective argument in political discussion. Almost every claim for government action on behalf of particular groups is advanced in its name. The expression, of course, described from the beginning the aspirations which were at the heart of socialism. Although classical socialism has usually been defined by its demand for the socialization of the means of production, this was for its chiefly a means thought to be essential in order to bring about just distribution of wealth. And since socialists have later discovered that this redistribution could be in great measure and against less resistance, he brought about be brought about by taxation and government services financed by it, and have in practice often shelved their earlier demands, the realization of social justice has become their chief promise. It might indeed be said that the main difference between the order of society at which classical liberalism aimed and the sort of society into which is now being transformed is that the former was governed by principles of just individual conduct while the new society is to satisfy demands for social justice. Or, in other words, that the former demanded just action by the individuals while the latter more and more places the duty of justice on authorities with powers to command people what to do. The phrase social justice could exercise this effect because it had gradually been taken over from the socialists not only by all the other political movements but also by most teachers and preachers of morality. It seems in particular to have been embraced by a large section of the clergy of Christian denominations who, while increasingly losing their faith in a supernatural revelation, appear to have sought a refuge and consolation in a new social religion, which substitutes a temporal for a celestial promise of justice, and who hope that they can thus continue their striving to do good. The Roman Catholic Church especially has made the aim of social justice part of its official doctrine— But the ministers of most Christian denominations appear to vie with each other with such offers of more mundane aims, which also seem to provide the chief foundation for renewed ecumenical efforts. What we have to deal with in the case of social justice is simply a quasi-religious superstition of the kind which we should respectfully leave in peace so long as it merely makes those happy who hold it, but which we must fight when it becomes the pretext of coercing other men. And the prevailing belief in social justice is at present probably the gravest threat to most other values of a free civilization." Obviously, much more can be said about all this, and even people like Hayek have acknowledged that there certainly is a place for a safety net in society. As he said a bit later in the chapter, there is no reason why in a free society government should not assure to all protection against severe deprivation in the form of assured minimum income or floor below which nobody need to descend. And since I mentioned Catholicism, one could also offer such much more discussion on that. Let me point out just one very useful resource to take this further. In 2015, noted Catholic social thinker and free market proponent Michael Novak penned a key volume, Social justice isn't what you think it is. Those so inclined might consider getting a hold of that book. But suffice it to say that there is far too much moral and mental sloppiness when it comes to things like social justice and socialism, and those calling themselves Christians can often be the most guilty of doing this. But I close with two further quotes. In 1979, Hayek said this to a Sydney audience, "'To discover the meaning of what is called social justice has been one of my chief preoccupations for more than 10 years. I have failed in this endeavor, or rather have reached the conclusion that, with reference to a society of free men, the phrase has no meaning whatsoever.'" And in 2011, Thomas Sowell wrote in Intellectuals and Society, Among the many arguments without arguments, none is more persuasive or more powerful than what is called social justice. Yet it is a term with no real definition, even though it is a term that has been used for more than a century. All justice is inherently social, since someone on a desert island cannot be either just or unjust. What seems to be implied by adding the word social to the concept of justice is that justice is to be established among groups rather than just individuals. But this collectivizing of justice does little to make the concept of social justice any clearer. Bill Muhlenberg's Culture Watch podcast is a production of The Good Source, presented by Bill Muhlenberg. Thousands of Bill's articles can be read on his website, billmuhlenberg.com. To watch, listen to, or read more media without the SJW PC fact filter, visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E, dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show.